What's up, everybody? Welcome to another Boardroom Out of Office podcast. This is podcast number 16. 16, Gianni. We are very blessed, my friend. How you doing today? Yes, sir. Can't complain. How are you, bro? I'm good. I'm, I'm going to cut our little small talk short today because we have a guest that will demand full attention. He goes by none other than Mr. Gary V. Gary, welcome to the show, my friend. Johnny Rich, thank you so much for having me. My, uh, my son Xander went four for four with three home runs uh, in Little League, and he wears number 16. Yes, that was a humble brag, but it only came in because you said episode 16. I was trying to think, should I t- say Vinny Testaverde or should I give Xander a shout out? And my intuition is Xander will listen to this in 10 years and be happy with me. Wow. The, the, the jet fan in you to even think Vinny Testaverde, but I know that going with your sons. Be careful. I'm a Jets fan that thinks Brad Smith. That was for all the real Jet fans out there. I know who Brad Smith is, by the way, and I'm a Giant fan. But congrats like to your son, man, on an Thank incredible you. day at the plate. Huge. So, and you just got, uh, you just had another birthday pass, right? I did. I, you know, I don't know when you guys are putting this out, but this last Saturday, November 14th, I turned 45. I decided the week heading into it, that I was, that means I've just walked into the locker room, you know, cause I feel like something, you know, I've never thought about retiring in my life, retiring quote unquote, and I won't, but you know, at some level being realistic and non-delusional matters. And I'm like, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to have the level of health to make me go to 90 and actually go to 90 and, you know, I think everybody who listens to this show has, the potential to know somebody who's still going at it at 88, 89, 90, 91. I feel like if I get to that number, there's gonna be such a level of gratitude. I'll probably take a step back, look around, and really ask myself if I've really got this last decade, because I project that our age group gets to 100, you know, like a little bit more common-ish, though many won't, unfortunately. Um, I just might wanna do something weird as fuck. You know, I feel like I'm super in the zone of like, whether it's an artist or an athlete or teacher or cop, like I really do what I was meant to do. Like I, re- I, cause I've always done it. Like lemonade stands, shoveling snow. Like when there was room to pick and choose having fun, not at, old, not at 17 for parties and shit. No, no, eight, seven, six, when you don't even know the logic of why you choose to do a lemonade stand versus play baseball or, or right? Or why when it snows, do you literally your chemicals make you wanna shovel snow, hard labor work instead of having a snowball fight? You know, I feel like I'm just very fortunate that I do what I was meant to do. So we're gonna reel this in a bit because you and me together equal like the ultimate lack of attention to, I mean, what is it? The ultimate attention deficit yet hyper-focus. So, I want to stay on the first thing about your 40s. I want to live to 100. Um, realistically, I don't know what that means, but that's just a dope number for me to target my whole life, right? I think that that's just I think, you know beautiful. what's funny? I, I, I feel very similar. And I feel like when you just said that, I'm like, I wonder if he also thinks like, fuck you if I don't get to 85. I'd like to get to 100. And then you kind of like think about that shit. Yeah, I'm not like, I'm not a hypochondriac. However, I focus, I've started to think about my health more than ever because I'm like, I want to do this forever. I want to go as long as I can and, and think about how bad the climate in our world is. So I am an eternal optimist in that way. But I've always felt, well, I'm 43, so I, I haven't always felt. But for the last three years, 
<clears throat> something came over me where it was like a certain level of comfort that I found within my own skin where I felt like I was in my prime and I had never felt that way before. So it was clear to me that I was in it where people younger than me looked to me in some ways that I had a certain experience and a certain uh, resume to back it up. And older people looked at me because I could still talk about the future, right? I could still have that same thing that you have as a kid uh, when you're constantly just telling people what you're going to do. And look, I think you and I didn't think we would look or act like this at 43 and 45 because when we were 16, there was nothing to look at that show. I mean, it's just crazy. You know, I give a lot of credit to hip hop. I give a lot of credit to the internet, like just the casualization. That's what I'll use. The casualization of real business. I mean, I fucking never thought of a businessman when I was 16, not wearing a suit and tie in a world where I was like, fuck, I don't want to wear a suit and tie. That's going to fucking suck. And so like, that makes a ton of sense to me. And I feel very, very, very similar, by the way. Now, the one thing is I in, always have intuitively felt that 50 to 60 was going to be my crazy decade because I know myself. I, I, first I knew at a young age that I wanted to give back to my parents. So like I basically started my career at 34 because I made no money from 22 to 34, even though I built a huge business for my dad, but I left Wine Library with nothing, you know? And so like, you know, and so I definitely like always probably understood that I was going to play a patience game that was different against the talent I thought I had. So I, I definitely always put 50 to 60 in this romantic, like that's going to be when I fucking destroy faces. Okay, so I'm excited to hear that because I listen to a lot of what you say. I resonate with it. And I'm going to start thinking of that decade a bit differently. I've been putting this insane urgency. Noel Helfrich, you and I have the luxury in our careers back to some of the success we put on the board back to spot. You know what will really work for you now that I'm listening? When you like, just take a step back. And sometimes when you're hanging with somebody, you don't, you forget they're 61 because they feel like us. We know they're a little older, but guess what? 27 year old cats, like Gianni, like they, that's how they look at us. They're like, okay, this person's definitely older, but fuck, they're not like, I don't know. And I think, I think when you pay attention to somebody who you have like a real dinner with and it feels lively and they're saying to you like, let's go, where are we going after? Or like after like, and, and then you're like, and then if you consciously say, either like if you just met them or kind of know them, be like, how old are you again? Or did, when you hear those 61s, 59s, 63, you're like, oh. Yeah, but that's why, so that's why I, I've been so intent that this was my prime because I still feel in touch, but I know how hard it is to stay in touch, right? That's why Gianni and I work so closely together. It's why most of the people at 35 Ventures are under the age of 30 years old, right? I'm sure the same for you. 35 is old as fuck. John, how old are you? 25. Too old. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, but, no, I, but Rich, I mean, look, look at Jimmy Iovine, like, right, when he was building, they were hustling beats by Dre. Like, I mean, Coach K, I don't know how cold, well, Coach K is a little younger than I thought, but like, I'm just thinking there's just, there's unlimited examples of people in their 60s and 70s that are, honestly, Rich, and I think you'll agree with me on this, the people that I see in their 60s and 70s who are not in touch decided not to be anymore because they made the nut they needed. But you occasionally find that guy or gal who's just still hungry and about that game and they're just as in touch as anybody in their 30s and 40s. I really believe staying in touch when you're an alpha A winner is actually predicated on when you've made enough for you and you don't give a fuck for that dirt. Yep. 
Well, also, but so there's that I completely agree with you on. Then there's another sector, which we don't even have to dive deep into, which is even if you're uh, not in this business and you have young kids, it's imperative to stay in touch. You'll lose your kids if you're not in touch. You have to know what's going on. But let me ask you a question. So I, I Gianna and I watched, we, we do this thing the day that we do our podcast because we don't do as many as you. So we like to get in this zone and clear the schedule a bit. And we were watching some videos of yours. And I think your journey and your story is well-documented. But what I admire about you a lot is how prolific you are in explaining exactly what you do, where you came from in such a short period of time, very fast, but clear. Um, born in the Soviet Union, came to America when I was three, went to Queens, nine family members in a studio apartment, remember a ton of it, which immediately gives you that taste. Moved to Jersey, you know, um, for first grade, uh, became an American there, discovered football very, very quickly, decided, you know, Jets is like passion from September of 1982 became a big football fan, loved sports, loved America, like lived that 1980s Jersey life outside 24 hours a day. Parents had no fucking clue where I was, riding bikes to Krausers, buying fucking, you know, now and laters, flip, it was cliche that kid, flip it, you know, go to now and laters, buy 20 of them, bring them back to the, you know, to the playground and double my money, lemonade stands, shoveling snow. Christmas carols as a nice Jewish boy, like whatever it took to make a dollar. Shit student, crazy bad, D's and F's, which was insane because every other Russian immigrant was, if you went to NYU, you were a disaster. You had to go to Harvard and Yale. I was completely on the other side of that. Had a dad that worked every minute, never saw him, even though he was in the same house as me every night. Had a mom who built so much self-esteem in me, but if I got out of line, would punch me in the face. So that balance of like all that. <sighs> Made a ton of money in baseball cards when I was a teenager, three, $4,000 a weekend, which kind of showed me like I'm different. Um, fell in love with my dad's business. He, at that point, he made, lived the American dream, saved all his money and bought a liquor store in Springfield, New Jersey. Dragged me into the store, pay me two bucks an hour, which from 4,000 a weekend, as you can imagine, was a game-changingly tough thing, but there was no option with Soviet parents. Fell in love with people collecting wine because I collected sports cards. Decided that I was gonna build the Toys R Us of wine, 8,000 locations for my dad one day. Saw the internet my freshman year at Mount Ida College in for, like formidable years for me. like. Terrible school, super rugged, like 90% of the kids on fucking, you know, student loans, like half the school on welfare, completely. I already had a lot of diversity growing up because of Jersey, but like all of my nuance when people ask me about like sports, edge, hip hop, like all of it came from that. You know, uh, came home every other weekend on Amtrak to work in my dad's liquor stores like a stock boy, like family business over everything, saw the internet my freshman year of college and said, fuck, this is gonna change the world. Completely pot committed, first five seconds, this is the world. Launched, while I was still in college, a website for my dad's business called Wine Library. Came into the business in 98. My dad was doing a little shy of $4 million a year in revenue, 400,000 in profit. In a seven year window, I grew that from a four to a $60 million business on the back of email marketing, Google AdWords, having a website, thought I was gonna be, thought I was one of the best retailers in the world, kind of like DNA, can't wait to get into my prime, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. 
YouTube comes out. I'm like, this is different. I was right about email. I was right about Google AdWords, but this fucking feels different. Started a wine show. It exploded. First time I started doing business by not spending money on marketing because it was happening organically. You, Google sells, Google buys YouTube for 1.7 billion. I go, I'm a fucking idiot. I'm always right about the future. I read an article about angel investing, decided I was an angel investor in the spot in my liquor store in 2006, seven, and decided I was gonna go to this thing called South by Southwest because it seemed like that was a thing. Went, started meeting people with my charismatic personality, like just met people, became friends with like Blaine Cook, the original CTO of Twitter, became friendly with Ed Williams, became friendly with David Karp of Tumblr, became friendly with Mark Zuckerberg, took all $200,000 I had saved because I was making like 50, 60, 70,000 a year, but spending no money working 15 hours a day in the liquor store. So I was able to save some money, which is why I always talk about it in my content. You can make 60,000 a year and save money if you spend 10,000, eat, live like dirt, eat like dirt. Like I, I, I had a plan, spent all that money, invest in those three companies, changed my life obviously. My brother's 11 years younger, best friend, graduating BU. I say, let's start, we start, decide to start a company. I amassed a ton of followers on Twitter. That made everybody pay attention to me. ESPN paid me $5,000 to consult for an hour. I thought that was a million dollars. I decided to start VaynerMedia because big companies don't know anything and I'm gonna consult for them and I'm gonna learn Fortune 500 land and then eventually buy big businesses because I'm not, I, I learn from the street. I'm not gonna go to get an MBA from fucking Harvard, but if I get Pepsi and Coke and Unilever as a client, I'm gonna fucking reverse engineer that shit in a year, know everything and fucking become like the guy. And basically from that platform, I decided that what I knew about modern marketing was better than everybody to just say it what it is. I really thought I was that guy. And so I decided five years ago, cause I couldn't get all my clients to do it, that I was gonna deploy it on myself Think of like superhero shit, like the, the crazy doctor by accident spills the potion on them and they're fucking, you know, the Hulk or Spider-Man or some shit like that. And so five years ago, I'm like, fuck this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the model on myself. And that took me from a certain place to a different place that allows me to be where I'm at now. It proved to me how right I was. And it's allowed me to deploy that against other things. Along the way, I started Several companies, Resi, which was a major exit to Amex a couple years ago. I started another one called uh, Empathy Wines, which I sold to Constellation earlier this year. So, you know what's funny? I have the sizzle because I'm the motivational speaker and the followers on social media, but then people that really look under the hood of that, they see the stake of like, you know, VaynerMedia's, you know, a thousand people globally, $200 million revenue business. I have these nine figure exits twice in the last five years. I took K-Swiss from losing a ton of money and being a completely not relevant brand. I made myself the face of it and did the marketing. They sold for you know, half a billion dollars to a Chinese apparel business. I'm starting to put the wins on the board where the real guys and girls are like, wait a minute, he might not just be a snake oil salesman, kind of yapper, motivational speaker, selling courses, bullshit guy. This guy might be a real thing. And to be frank, Rich and Johnny, to me, whether I get the booze or I get the cheers, I can't hear shit. I'm in my zone. I'm gonna execute, fucking build bricks and let the chips fall where they may. Who are the people that clap back at you? Who says that you're just this internet, Motivational speaker. It comes from a lot of different angles. A competition a lot of times isn't happy when you're shining, which I respect. Um, the honest answer, people that 
have time to clap back. Fact, haters are gonna hate, but hold on. I wanna go back. So the tip, the tipping point in your story, it seems like 07, 08, you feel like a wave of energy and people saying South by Southwest. You go to South by Southwest, you meet these dope people, you believe in them, you believe in their companies, and you're on a whim, you invest in like Tumblr, Facebook, I forgot what the third one was. Twitter. Twitter. And so like, what was that aha moment that either those three companies it was, were- It was, yeah. you know, it's funny. It's funny you say on a whim, you know, it was, it was the culmination of 11 years of marketing properly on the internet. At the same token, to your point, it wasn't a whim because fuck man, I bled for shit to build my dad's business, knew I had no equity in the business because anybody who's listening right now that knows anything about family businesses, it doesn't matter if you take it from four to 60. You don't get that shit until the dad or mom dies. So I was in that old school game, so I knew the rules. And you don't think there's resentment for that? I work 15 hours a day, all my friends are hooking up, fucking go do Coachella, fucking Atlantic, Jersey shorn up, fucking grinding 15 hours on a Saturday, building shit. I'm not building wealth for myself. But you know, when you're in that family zone, you, there's resentment, but there's not. You know, it's this fucking classic thing. Regardless, it wasn't a whim at all. It was like the most conviction I ever had, 11 years worth of my work. But bro, that was my fucking money. Like taking my bank account to zero again after, after knowing that should have said 5 million, not 200,000. That wasn't like, you know, it wasn't, you know, but it was such conviction. And bro, my man, if I fucking was educated, if I knew anything back then, I would have known things like SPVs. I would have went to every fucking millionaire I knew in the wine business and asked them to invest in Facebook and I would have carried their money for 20%. I probably have the jets now. That's how positive I was that Facebook was gonna be the biggest company in the world. So you're at South By. I mean, I was hustling at South By for the last 15 years too. How did you know as a successful wine e-commerce salesman that you had to be around Mark Zuckerberg? How did you, I mean, a lot of it's fate, bro. A lot of it has to be fate and luck, but there's some skill to what you did. I hired, I hired two guys to build winelibrary.com with me, which was crazy. You didn't hire developers for a liquor store in fucking 1998. That was the first domino because we were a small company and we had no room. So they literally sat on, we sat on top of each other. Literally Eric Kastner, big shout out Eric Kastner, John Casamatis, they changed the course of my career. They were just developers. They're not fucking Elon Musk, but they were good developers in 1998 that knew the internet and nobody did back then. And they're like, why the fuck are you on Yahoo? Search on Google. I'm like, what's Google? I look on, I'm like, this is stupid. They have no ads. It's gonna be a bad business. You know, you're going through your process, right? Like Google, they're like, read Andy Bio, Waxy.org, Jason Kotke, here's Emil Dash, some of these OG, 02, 03, 04 internet personalities, right? And then TechCrunch. TechCrunch is what really put me on. Started reading TechCrunch early, early, and every day I would read it religiously. This company, this company. Now you start, you know, now you start reading like, the Facebook becomes facebook.com. Like, huh? you know, like Facebook open, my brother's 11 years older, so he has it at BU. So that was serendipity back to what you talk about, right? So you got a brother who's like, bro, this is the fucking game, fuck MySpace. I'm like, it is? Okay, dope. Let me do some homework. Now you're Googling shit. Now you're in a, now all my energy that used to try to figure out Bordeaux and Champagne and Silver Oak and what our Chilean wines are good. Now I'm finding myself on dig.com and slash that and like all the slash, slash dot, excuse me, meta filter, all this nerd ass, nerd ass shit that nobody as cool as you or as common as everybody else was going to, but there was a small group of nerd life 
that live there. And I mean, when I tell you I went to my first South by and started talking business, and to your point, you went the next week, which is South by Music, which was fucking important. This South by Tech had nothing back then, hundreds of people coming. And I, you know, thousands, tens of thousands max. And I would go, and when I tell you, Rich, Gianni, when I mentioned the business, the first time I went, business, they looked at me like I was a piece of shit. They're like, we're not here for business, we're here to change the world on some altruism shit. And I was like, yeah, 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 I was just kidding. But in my mind, I was like, I was like, you guys are lost. This is gonna be business real fast because you're gonna change the world. All right, so to slow down a bit and try to get some facts, you're at uh, South By's Tech Week, very few people there. You've earned your stripes by building this technology for the wine business. You know how to enter a room. You only have a few hundred thousand dollars. And in 2008, these guys are raising rounds from big institutional capital. And they let you invest alongside of it, correct? Yes, and, but I have to remind you, you ready for this one? Get ready to be on the floor. Tumblr's B round was a $14 million valuation. How much did you put in? On that one, 84,000. You know, so 84,000 times from 14 million to a billion when they sold to Yahoo. I mean, but it wasn't even about that, Rich. It's to remind the kids that are listening right now that now you have an idea and you think you can get 10, 15 million. Back then, Tumblr was like fucking, I wasn't a fuck, I wasn't Nostradamus. Every, I, I had my ear to the street. I knew that every single junior high kid in fucking America was on Tumblr. And I was like, okay, if they're on this, then like, that's like, you know, back to your world, this is funny how life works. I used to have a subscription to the source, but I would only, this is not a joke, I would only read Unsigned Hype and then bring it into school and give it to my other hip hop friends. I always, to this day, only for some reason have been a, you know how like ladybugs go to that light thing and, and they die? Like I am attracted to what's next in a way that has just been in me. Rookie cards instead of legends, unsigned hype in the source, you know, angel investing. It's why I've been good with influencers and know who's always gonna pop. You know, people that are listening that follow hip hop music, it's why a lot of people like The Baby and Gunna show up in my world early, early. Like, it's just what I get into. Yeah, so listen, it's frightening sometimes when we talk, right? I have so many similarities. I didn't focus at all in school. I consciously remember checking out in the eighth grade, not quite sure how I graduated was out of college in a year, was a sports book, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I've heard you say multiple times that, well, I heard an interview four years ago. Let me just quote this one interview where you said, if an entrepreneur comes and sits down with you and they start reeling off their school history, you're starting to look the other way. Has that opinion changed four years later? Yes and no. Four years ago when I was doing that was the golden era of every kid going to Penn and any other and Stanford and getting enormous amounts of fundraising. And unlike six years earlier where a lot of those kids were really entrepreneurs and good students, now you had C's and D's and E's, number five, sixes and nines acting like entrepreneurs and startups because that's what everyone was doing. And I thought it was a bad formula. So you in that interview, it was timely in the fact that that's when I was glazing over because I was fucking losing money. I was betting on these kids like, eh, you know, and it was working back in the, you know, 2005, six, seven lab. But now in 2015, everybody was an entrepreneur. So I started glossing over. The reality is there's unlimited amounts of purebred entrepreneurs that go to Brown and Harvard and Yale and they've got it like that. At the same token, 
I will always, until I go into the ground, fund gals and guys like you and me, Rich. For sure. I just don't, I just like the street thing because I think the thing that I learned from 2010 to 2015 was a lot of these kids didn't know what to do when they got punched in the fucking mouth. Yeah. Yeah, straight up. I'll tell you this. I'm straight up. I'm the most mentally stable and grounded of almost every kid I grew up with. And 20 years ago on paper, no one would have bet on that. I do think that some of the journey that an entrepreneur goes through, some of the journey that somebody that just doesn't connect with the norm as a kid, if harnessed in the right way, those bumps along the way can be really empowering and really strengthening. This is why we have to be very thoughtful for the kids now and why I talk a lot of different shit because I was 243 out of 254 in my class rank in high school. I'm from a, you know, and back then it was like, if you go to a good college, you make money. I'm not saying I'm a better person than everybody I went to. I'm not saying I'm happier, which I think is the most important part, even though I'm ridiculously happy. But I will tell you factually that I will outperform financially every kid in my class combined. But back then that wasn't obvious. So I always think to myself, what's not obvious now? What are we looking at and thinking, and by the way, that's how I got to my entrepreneur thing. Everybody now wants to be an influencer and an entrepreneur, and I think that's unhealthy for mental state because to be a real entrepreneur or an influencer that takes on all that heat, you need stomach. I call it stomach. Yes, bro, listen. First of all, a few things, and I'll riff a little bit. Colleges are embracing the, let's quote unquote, more non-traditional entrepreneurial journey to get somewhere. Uh, We have our boardroom university that was embraced by colleges right off the bat because that relatable conversation that you can't get in a textbook. You know know why, Rich? They need you more than you need them. But you and I as street kids, like we think like, oh, listen, I'll say it out loud. When HBS and Stanford asked me to speak, I was like, yo, you know, like, you know, but now I'm like, it's flipping. Well, here's one thing I will say for the record, I'm not a street kid. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I have worked in hip hop music and I've worked in sports and I was a city kid, but I wasn't a street kid. But I will say that street smarts and that kind of savviness that, you know, like getting knocked down and getting right back up, prepare you in a way that school can't. And by the way, real quick, just because this is fun and we're all jamming, I use street as like a slang term for like street smart. like. Listen, 99% of people are not gangbanging and fucking selling drugs at 11 years old. But a ton of people are in the position where, like me, I was not carrying a gun at 12. But when I said to my mom, everyone's getting Nintendo, she looked me dead in the face and said, that's good, go buy it. That to me is street kid. That was like, oh shit, I gotta go outside and sell rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally understand. I know that. I almost was clearing that up for for the sake of the conversation. Yeah, 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 good. But if I look at, people that say, I want to be an entrepreneur. It's obvious. You can't just say you want to be an entrepreneur. You're, you can be wired that way. I think there's some people that are wired to not really even care about what they do for a living. It's about getting a paycheck and getting to everything else that's important in your life. And I had friends when I was a kid, they used to say to me, if I work at US, uh, UPS for X amount of years, by the time I get to this, I'm going to have a pension, this much in savings. And work was just like uh, paying a bill, it was a necessity. So put those people aside, which I have a lot of respect for, but 
people that want to be successful in business, want to own something, create something, build something. I think some people are wired to be entrepreneurial, don't have to go to school, just like a kid growing up doesn't have to go to the college to go to the MBA. But there are some kids, and I think that it's someone like your responsibility to some degree to talk to these young entrepreneurs and say, look, you don't have to leave school. I couldn't agree more. By the way, couple things while we're on this jam. I don't think entrepreneurs are better than anybody. I love being an entrepreneur. It's my game. But I, you know, one of the things to your point, like I, over the last two, three years, I've been pushing hard on, please don't think you have to be, it's not as cool as you think. I understand it's cool right now. It won't be cool in 15 years. These things ebb and flow. Like be self, you know what's cool? Being self-aware. Knowing who you are and knowing what you like. You wanna be a cop, mazel tov. You wanna be a teacher, excellent. Stay at home dad, even better because that means you have the real ability in today's culture to deal with that you know, overflow of comments. Entrepreneur, epic, but if not, cool. Number three, top mid-level executive who loves to play softball and have that balance, like know yourself. That's what you have to be, that's cool. Does self-awareness kill entrepreneurship? I think self-awareness enhances entrepreneurship. Well, lack of self-awareness. Oh, lack of self-awareness kills your life. Kills everything. Rich, I'll be honest with you. I, I believe that self-esteem and self-awareness, if I can live, like, sometimes I have wild thoughts of like, okay, I didn't think about the internet when I was 12. I was like, you know, like, what am I not thinking about now that's gonna be like real life? Like when I'm 62, are they gonna be like, and one of the things I think about is actually just like, just like ass implants, why can't we, now that we know our chemical breakdown, are we gonna be in a place where people are like, poop, let me take these injection and now I'm self-aware? Because if you, if you asked me besides health, and you and I are becoming more and more friendly, and when I get into that place where I really care about somebody, I literally go in this place in my mind, I'm like, I wish them nothing but health. Like that, like honestly, like you could be the greatest and everything could be great, you know? Look at Kobe, right? Health, right? Like that's real life. Genuine health, not having accidents or diseases. And number after that, it's self-esteem and self-awareness. If you have self-esteem and self-awareness, you're completely unbeatable. I am so grateful to my parents for giving me that DNA and then the parenting I got, which enhanced the self-esteem versus being insecure, the serendipity of it, which my parents didn't have the same way I did. I just am so grateful because when you're self-aware, and you have massive self-esteem, nothing phases, you don't give a fuck if your idol shits on you. You, we, you weirdly like it. Yeah, but self-esteem and being self-aware are not as the same in terms of how easy it is to attain that. You, so in your, in your entire chase through all of your successes in life, you haven't been scared or insecure at times in your rise? In business, I've got this weird kind of like, you know how like, you know, like that thing. Not in business, I'll tell you why. In like growing up I did, like I wasn't as confident with girls, so I know exactly what it feels like to be like scared, like oh, there's Stacey Johnson, like I can't, like the same way, but in business I'm like, yo fucking, you know, like CEO number one, like let's go, like so it, this is why I know I'm in my zone. Like, right, like, like, like of course, you know, I don't like heights, throw snakes at me, I'm gonna shit my pants. There's plenty of things I'm scared of. I fear the health of my family tremendously. I used to have nightmares of my family dying, so I've had things business know, I'll tell you why. I don't know why this is, 
but I almost weirdly am romantic about going back to zero. Now, people don't believe me and I respect that because it sounds ludicrous. But when I tell you the Rocky where he lost it all and went back to the neighborhood, I'll never forget watching that movie. Like every part of my chemicals, not even my brain, I couldn't, was like, right? Was like, yeah, yeah, like I'm gonna fucking lose it all. They're all gonna shit on me. And then I'm gonna rise like a phoenix. Every time there's athletes that crash that I don't like, I didn't have any feelings towards Tiger. He crashes, now I'm like, let's go. Like I, I'm underdog guy. I associate with underdog, I love underdog. And even when I'm winning, I almost subconsciously sabotage myself to not get to the next place because I prefer, enjoy being underestimated. I'll give you an insight. You asked me something interesting. You're like, who are these people that say that you're just a whatever? No, go, I want everybody to rewind and see how I had to hesitate a little bit because I'm not even sure if I'm manifesting the haters, Gianni. Exactly. Because, because like, that's what gets me in that place. Now, of course, there's people that don't think I'm gonna buy the Jets or I'm overrated. When you've got any, everybody that's got, even anybody that knows everybody has that level of back talk, but I, I love that, Rich. I, I'll tell you why I've never been scared. It, first of all, I'm an immigrant. What that means is, back to the way I define it, because there's a million ways to define it. It always means that I have enough cash stashed away somewhere that if everything goes to zero, I can still put a roof over my head and the kids will be okay. Like, you know, like, so I have this like secret stash that's forever. So that's one thing. I know that I'm never betting the whole farm. Number two, if I lose it all, I don't have any needs to have the fucking, you know this, I've talked a lot about this if you guys have done your homework. I'm not the guy that's about needing things to show my W's. I'm not about the private jet life. I'm not about the, you know, even, even, I've even struggled being a sneaker head because I'm like, eh, like I talk about not flexing, but these are $900 a pair. Like, you know, like I, I struggle with a little bit. Um, even the sports card thing, when it got hot, I wanted to kind of flex some of my collection, but I'm like, eh, do I post this $48,000 rookie card? Like, you know, that, like, who that, like that's, that's me being a, you know, a hypocrite to the people like, I don't need that validation. So if I lose it all, A, I love the game more than the success the game gives me. Let's talk about that for a minute. If I lose, it means I deserved it. I made a series of bad decisions that led me to losing it all. I deserve to go back to renting an apartment instead of owning some shit, because guess what? I lost. That's one of the things I hate about old rich people is they try to use their money to change laws so they can keep their money. And I say to them, and I have a lot of 80 year old rich friends, I say, motherfucker, when you were the young lion, you were killing the old lion, but you're the old lion now. So A, either be a great old lion, because they come around once in a while, or be fucking eaten, but don't try to change the rules of the jungles, bitch. (laughs) Seriously, that's what I fucking, I don't like that shit. Don't try to like change the tax code or have the politician this or did that. Like that means you're you're soft. People are like, no, no, Gary, that means I'm smart. I'm like, cool. That means you value money over people that are fucking A's looking at you like a loser because you're finished. All right, so let me let me say something. I, I, if I'm listening to this podcast and I'm a younger version of myself, you're you're motivating the shit out of me right now. So like, I can only <laughs> imagine what someone that was like half my age would, and it's inspiring. But there'd be a small part of me that'd be like, "Come on, man, why are you not talking about some of the like dark moments, the dark feelings?" Like, I can tell you, I probably focused on my social life too much as a kid, and and didn't harness my entrepreneurial spirit 
towards a greater good or towards a business. It was about building my network. It ended up coming in handy, but there was dark ass moments, like times where I was like going the wrong way and I was scared shitless. I think I did foundational. I, we played it a little different, serendipity. We, we know each other, I know a little bit about you, but like a couple things. First of all, let's start with this. It depends on how you see dark moments. I spent 12 years working every minute of my life for my dad and have very little financial success for it. Is that a dark moment? Is that a good moment? I then start a new business with my brother and I don't want him to do, have the same thing that I happened. So I make him my 50-50 partner, even though I had all the leverage and had all the juice and then went through eight years building a company with him and executed at a greater level than he did. Forget even a starting point. And then he leaves because he wants to do sports and I have to buy him out off of something that if he's here right now, I know he knows and I know and he knows, like, right? So one could argue I'm 45 now and I've created all this creation, but I have 28, 23, 22% of quote unquote what the business gods think I deserve financially. Do I have resentment moments to the two people I love the most? Yes. That's dark. You don't want to be mad at your dad. You don't want to resent, you know, and, and so like everybody has moments. Are you paranoid? About business? Are you just paranoid? I feel like, you know, I, no. you don't find yourself paranoid. You don't feel like people are on your tail. You got to keep going. No. If you don't stop, it's going to go away. I'm not paranoid. I'm wildly motivated to fulfill the, lux the luxury and the luck I was gifted talent-wise. I, I have a sense of responsibility of the serendipity of my life. I'm not motivated by paranoia. I'm motivated by how much can I squeeze out of this fucking container? Wow. I, I'm, not, I'm not mad at that answer. You got something, G? I want to stay present, right? So COVID, quarantine, you know, it's created eyeballs on mobile. Brands are switching to e-commerce, things we know. But I want to know what's the future of consumer experience that we're not seeing? Audio. Humans don't like friction. People don't realize that here's what's really gonna happen. In 13 years, in 20 years, whether it's Tesla or Alexa or some other company we can't think of because a 14 year old girl in Kansas City is gonna be the one, you're gonna walk into your home and you're gonna get answers to questions that you now grab your phone for in a hundredth of a second. Alexa, send me a pizza. And Alexa's gonna send you the pizza based on everything they know about you. The hottest rated pizza, the pizza, they're gonna, like, it's gonna get smarter and smarter and smarter. Voice activated AI. Sounds like Jarvis from Iron Man, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, it, listen, that's exactly right. Like, I don't need to hit up Lou and Alex on my team and say, hey, I need to speak to Rich for 15 minutes. I'm just gonna say, Google, get me a meeting with Rich. Me and Rich are gonna be in our circles together, back to the old Google Plus. They're gonna know there's a relationship there and they're gonna look at both of our Google calendars and book it for us. Gary, when I hear you explain that, you say it with such excitement and I'm excited, but in another way, I'm scared shitless, bro. I remember the first time I went to San Francisco, I'm gonna name drop, but I already said it on my first podcast with Jack. I went to Jack Dorsey's house and we got into this incredible conversation about how one of his fears, I think he said, or one of his predictions was that there was a good chance that computers could legitimately take us over. And I'm sitting there. No, 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 Rich, they're going to. They have, maybe. They No, that gets into the philosophical. No, no, I mean like, robot comes to your house and shoots you in the face. You're saying that that will happen? 
I'm saying it's not something that you shouldn't consider, but you know, you could also go into a car tomorrow and get into a car accident, which has, by the way, for the record for everybody, dramatically better odds than fucking Terminator coming and killing you. For sure. But think about how quickly some of these patterns of behavior. And, and how not quickly. Think about how the internet, you and I know, has, when did the internet hit your radar? 99, 99. Great. Think about we're now 21, 22 years in and there's a ton of things that we thought would happen with the internet back then that haven't. I thought everybody would buy everything on the internet. We're all talking about e-commerce, COVID, this and that. It's still fucking 25, 20, 22, 21, 19% of all commerce. 21 years later, shit goes faster than you think, shit goes slower than you think. For sure, for sure. There's some legitimate patterns that have changed the idea. I said to Gianni earlier, like, what did people do before the selfie? Like, what was the selfie? And like, that just happened, right? Like, they just switched the camera phone so you could take a picture of yourself in the last 20 years. Oh, my God, bro. Everything. I mean, you, I mean back again, I want to teach people context. When you and I were coming up the game, when we, you and I were Gianni's age, if you dated online, you were the nerdiest, weirdest, 413 pound you know, kid in your mom's basement. Now, sliding into DM, like that's, that's standard. Can I throw something at you? Yeah. This point's an interesting one because I think you'll like it. The atomic bomb is invented. Then Russia has it. American Russia have it, right? Everyone's taught, our parents' generation taught to go under the desk, this, that. If you're... If you're scared, if you're paranoid, if you're, if you're looking at half glass empty, there's no way you're predicting in 1955 that 60 years later, nobody's pressed the button. I mean that, I, want, I know that's a, I want everybody to hear that. Like these are atomic bombs, they blow up everything. And I'll tell you where I'm going with it. The reason I'm not scared is because I believe in the human spirit. I really do. I don't know how to tell you. You both are eternal optimists. I like it. A friend of mine's making a film on atomic bomb. I think ultimately that is leverage for countries that challenge mankind, challenge like our basic human spirit, because it's this myth, even though it is based in fact that like that's supposed to end all, right? That's supposed to blow up an entire territory. That's what you thought about as a kid. Really, it's like people challenging one another because no one ultimately wants that. That's like the leverage they hold over themselves. One would argue, like I probably would have lost this bet. If you, we were hanging here in 1955 having this podcast, I would be like, man, if you're like, hey, in 65 years, I'd be like, man, somebody's got to come along like Hitler. And I'd be like, fuck it, let's do it. Just, well, but I think at the end of the day, that's what I mean. Like this thing now, it has represents at least to people it's still this mythical like card you're holding in your deck but what my friend is going to expose in this film is just how close how tangible how real how prevalent it all really is but let's let's move off nuclear war for a second (laughs) um can we talk about accountability because all of this all this talk made me think of social dilemma and everyone's like gary what about the algorithm and i'm like delete the app Nobody wants to be accountable. Let me tell you another thing that leads me to a ton of happiness, accountability. It's all my fault if something sucks. Well, but there's, it's, it's not as black and white as that anymore. Especially, of course it's not. But when you tell people they need to stay in touch, you can't delete the app anymore. It's about learning these certain behaviors. But accountability matters. Like is alcohol, should we ban it? Because we did that too, right? Like I'm with you. What I'm saying is if you know that you're not in a happy place, well, guess what? People know that they have 
a tendency to drink alcohol. Yes. People know they have like, a, like, like there's guns. That's our second amendment. Like you, you don't have to shoot people. Like there's a lot of like, like what I find fascinating is when there's something new that emerges, we as a tendency decide to ban or look at it as bad instead of looking at ourselves on accountability. I think you're right. I think you're right about that. But I think that there's again, some like human fears and insecurities that I'm not saying you're glossing over, but I'm not that, glossing it over. I think that why don't we talk about parenting more? Why don't we? Because yeah, I'm not. I don't want to gloss over it. I just want to talk about real life, like like asking, you know, like like people don't understand the slippery slope of like non accountability. Like we want to talk about an algorithm. I haven't heard anybody talk about parents are so full of shit that they're sending their kids to unhappiness in Little League and fucking Harvard and fucking, listen, I'm proud of Xander like I started this show with. I don't think Xander's gonna be a fucking New York Met. You know, but meanwhile, I find unlimited parents running around town thinking their kid's LeBron or something and they fucking don't parent right. They wanna put the sticker on their fucking car that their kid went to fucking Yale, but they don't do anything to put their kids in a position for success around who they actually are. They create an ideology which creates massive insecurity and creates enormous anxiety and everyone's like social media has led to fucking all this suicide i'm like no it's not atrocious parenting that is so fucking keeping up with the joneses and everybody wants to flex and make their little sally's going to fucking yale meanwhile little sally's popping pills 24 7 why don't you give a fuck about that instead of blaming fucking instagram for you know instagram's parenting your kid we have generational disaster and parents creating accountability and giving a fuck because they've all become selfish about their own shit and they're fucking blaming millennials. Rich, do you know who blames millennials for sucking? The people that fucking raised them. Wow. Yeah, man, I'm passionate about this because I'll tell you why I'm passionate about it. Because I read tens of thousands of DMs from 13, 14, 15 year olds all day long and we, we want to blame everybody but ourselves and we have a major keeping up with the Joneses problem in society that is really hurting people. Let's try to dive into a few of the things you said. As a parent of two girls that are 11 and seven, and I know you have kids too. 11 and eight. I'm gonna defend parents from one respect. Go ahead. Parents, I believe, for the most part, some of them are just inherently selfish people that turn the other way, but that's bad parenting, right? But parents are doing the best they can in this climate right now that I do believe for the first time is without an answer. Imagine trying to parent a kid in uncharted waters. Why is that different than a world war? Why is that different than the it's black not, plague? It's not. It's not. And by the way, by the way, I think you know this. I'm not talking about COVID. COVID's four minutes old. I'm talking about a generational generational parenting model. Do you know kids in Southeast Asia, if they're not a doctor or a lawyer, like shunned, like you should see these DMs I get from India, Pakistan, China, stuff like, like, you know, I mean, you know this, Rich, you grew up in the city, you have a, you have a better, I mean, I, became, I didn't know I was in a cocoon. I've only learned this. You've seen this where parents create these realities for their children. What I don't like, because I'll tell you where I'm going at. I agree, parenting is hard. I have, oh, by the way, full disclosure and clarification. I, have, I don't tell people how to parent. They know their circumstances. I have enormous empathy, compassion, love for parenting because it's hard as shit. Here's what I don't like. 
we're on rampage of blaming technology when the reality is there's unlimited kids doing just fine with technology. They have grounded parenting infrastructures and we have to add that element to the conversation because the rampantness of fuck technology is out of control. So I, I, now I'm on the same page with you because the accountability from that standpoint is that's the easy route, right? Like, man, fucking Instagram is killing our kids. TikTok's killing our kids. Or when I worked in hip hop and worked in the music industry, it was the record labels responsible for uh, my record sales. Accountability drives me crazy when the person doesn't put the work in. If you put all the necessary work in and you get there and it doesn't happen, I think you can blame. You can blame yourself. You can blame someone that might have dropped the ball along the way if you put all the work in. My biggest problem, and this is the one part of accountability that drives me crazy, is the accountability for did you do what you're supposed to do? Did you clean up your side of the street? And from that standpoint, in a professional landscape, that keeps me up at night because you, how do you fill your company with people like yourself? How do you fill your company with people that- Well, I think for me, I think that you don't because when you're the number one, everybody else shouldn't be doing what you're doing. You wanna, what, what I think is my job is to reverse engineer my employees and put them in the best position to succeed. And I think I feel that guilt and gratitude out of, I think my mom doing that job for me back to where my energy is coming from the last 30 minutes of like what you can, my mom parented three kids differently. And I have so much respect for her. Like she put us in a position to succeed. I try to fill my company with good human beings and then take on a responsibility on my end to reverse engineer what's obvious about their strengths and weaknesses and what they like, and then find a level of kind candor so they know where they stand and put them in a position to actually flex on what comes. I, I feel a huge sense of responsibility. I really, it's amazing, one of my greatest luxuries, thank you God for this, is I really do think I work for my employees, not the reverse, and it's been a major formula for me. Well, explain that more. If somebody decides to work at VaynerMedia, I, I think a lot of people have employees think that they're paying them and then they should be working for them. Like it's a very kind of like, not slave, but like it's a very transactional, like I pay you motherfucker, you should work hard. Like, and for me, it's weird. Even though I pay them, I feel this crazy like head coach more like reality of like, yes, I pay you, but comma, I need to really get to know you. I need to create a system that can get to know you. And like, maybe you shouldn't be in paid media because even though you paid past our math test, Look at all this anthropology shit you have. You need to be in strategy. And I, I like that sense of responsibility and I think it's been very healthy. How many people work for you? 900 at VaynerX. Give me the snapshot. Give me your companies, what you do a day to day. VaynerX is VaynerMedia, the original company that I started. That company has about 600 people. That's an advertising agency, Mad Men. If you watch Mad Men, that's what we do, media and creative, just like they used to do in the old days. Then there's the Sasha group named after my dad, Sasha. It's the small business version of VaynerMedia because there were so many people that wanted it. There's the Gallery Media Group, which is a publishing arm where I have Pure Wow and 1.37 PM and where we do our original podcasts. Uh, that's a company I bought three years ago from a guy named Ryan Harwood. Who, um, so we do publishing. That's you know Vice, Refinery29, ESPN.com, Condé Nast, that, that publishing. There's Tracer, which is a business technology platform that I recently put on your radar. That's a SaaS company that um, does analytics, business intelligence in the data-rama-like realm for anybody who's listening. Then there's Vayner Speakers, a speaking bureau, um, because I was doing a lot there and I just thought that we could do a lot more and 
that's gone extremely well. Obviously, it's been completely disrupted by this time. Same with Vayner Productions, the production facility that makes all the commercials and the videos and stuff that we do. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of our ecosystem. Um, and so it's a, it's a modern day media holding company. Um, and that's, and what I, I mean, I spend 90% of my day do being the CEO and chairman of that holding co. What have been your big cash windfalls in your career? What are the moments? Uh, empathy. When we sold empathy to consolation that just recently happened. Um, I sold 50% of Twitter stock a couple years after it went public and it went as early there. Tumblr was a full cash event. Buddy Media was a full cash event when Salesforce bought it. Um, Resi was a very, very, very big one for me because we owned and operated it. Um, tell, me the, tell me the life of Resi. Tell me that one example. Resi, I think, was a five-year run from inception of me, Ben Leventhal, having dinner at a restaurant a Michael White restaurant here on the Upper East Side to Amex buying it. It was an open table, modern competitor. And then really all my chips are still in, like I haven't sold a single share of Facebook. I haven't, you know, I have, I have Uber. Like I, I have a lot of Wall Street stock that I got in early. And then I have a ton. And then really my business, right? Like I earn from, you know, I mean, my books, my, to, to talk about wealth creation, like, I've got five New York Times selling, best New York Times selling books that annuity all the time and had big advances. Um, speaking is lucrative for me. Obviously I lost all that this year, but you know, I make six figures per speech. It adds up if you're on the road and do 20, 30 of them a year, it adds up quick. So, you know, but, but I'm still in the place where I'm building this conglomerate, my Viacom, my, my WPP, whatever you want to call it, my, my real wealth, my Jets thing is going to come from the fact that I built VaynerX and then I started companies like Empathy in them or I bought things like K-Swiss. If I buy, you know, I hope to get to the scale one day where I'm buying things that look like Puma and like chocolate and like Oreos, like major, like I'm hoping to be buying, maybe those two are too big, but I'm looking to buy in my, hopefully in the next decade, I'll buy something for 630 and make headlines and then sell it for what 7.3 or take it public billion. You know, like that, that's how I see my world, replicating the K-Swiss. I'm showing my cards, people just don't see it. I did the K-Swiss thing. I did the empathy thing. Literally in the last 48 months, I have rebuffered re a nostalgic brand that dominated in the 80s and made it contemporary and started something from scratch and created a nine figure potential exit through a transaction, I say potential because we got eight, but I got an earn out that can get me there. And so that's, I'm showing my cards. I just hope that it's not gonna be K-Swiss and empathy. I hope the next thing is I start a beauty, I start an Axe body spray or a, or a Chips Ahoy competitor from zero to a billion. And I hope it's not K-Swiss, I hope it's Converse. I buy a Converse, the whole thing, and then run it for a decade. Do you wanna go public with your holdings company? No, I don't think I can be a publicly traded CEO. There's too much that I'm too crazy about that I, I wanna be independent. Like I don't wanna be, I don't need to be on a earnings call every 90 day and have like students analyze if I'm doing the right shit. I understand that. Yeah, it's not, I'm not gonna win their game. I'm an investor, meaning I lose money a lot to win the end game. Yeah. So I don't need my stock going from 24 to 13 and my board being mad at me when I'm like, fuck all of you. I'm gonna take this to 200, shut the fuck up and let's go. And like, and people, I don't like short-term economics. I don't like that behavior. 
And so I don't build businesses to flip them even though I've had some because the timing's been right and it's been right. And so I just don't think I would do well in a public, I don't think that's my strength. That's back to self-awareness. This is where I admire people that are good at it. I don't think I'd be good at it. I think I'd get antsy. Did you want to be famous? No, and I proved it. I was 34 years old working in a liquor store in New Jersey. Like there was no LA, I didn't come to the city. You know this, like you didn't hear a single fucking thing of me, even though we were, you know, eight miles away from each other for 20 years. Not a peep, never went out, no town group, no old, no Eton Sugarman, no, no, nothing, Z- zero. I mean, I proved it in my actions. I was 34 when I made my first piece of content. What I realized later was there's going to be business leverage in me having notoriety. And so I'm gonna build this leverage. And I like, pe- I love people. So it didn't fuck with me. I didn't feel like I had anything to hide. So that didn't fuck with me. But I, didn't, I never yearned for it. I like attention. I'm definitely a class clown. I'm definitely like the guy at the dinner table with eight people that talks too much. I'm sure people are, don't like the way I'm talking too much in this interview, right? Like, but, but I never thought about fame because I wanted to be a businessman and businessmen weren't famous. And if they were, they were like nerdy Bill Gates. So I was like, fuck that. We didn't grow up in the era where businessmen had this level of, I mean, now we have people that you and I look, when I think about your world, when I think about people you've interacted with in your career, just call it KD and Jay-Z, like, like when I think about those individuals thinking entrepreneurship is cool, that makes me jump out of the window. I'm like, how did I get so lucky? The love of my life. Yeah. The love of my life, entrepreneurship. The thing I did when I was a kid, the thing that was frowned on when I got D's and F's even though I made money, how the fuck did that become the thing rappers and athletes thought was cool? I pinch myself, I'm so grateful. Was that important to you? Like, do you focus on trying to be culturally relevant as well? I think I've always liked it. I, I don't think, it, you know what's funny, Rich? I don't think anybody, I think the only difference between me now and 20 years ago, and all my friends love this, and they jump into the comments sometimes to talk about this, is people just pay attention to what I say now. Like, was it important for me to be culturally relevant? I don't know. I think it's awfully weird in 1992 to buy the source for Unsight Hype so you could walk around high school and talk about an emerging rapper nobody's heard of and hope that they become the notorious B.I.G. I used to really gravitate towards that because I, at that point I wanted to be in the music industry and I really looked up to Damon Dash and Jay-Z and Puffy. and I never even, I never even thought that could be people I would intermingle with other than if they bought shit, you know, wine for me one day you know, at that point in my life. But no, I think I've always, like, I bought rookie cards. I made a score on Kenny Lofton because I bought him before he was anybody. I got a great high, and it's now it makes sense. Back then, I didn't understand it, of seeing things that other people don't see. Yeah, but, you know, I, so I, I, you definitely have. I mean, you definitely have, and I think you have a certain drive that is even on a different speed than most entrepreneurs. For instance, I did know all those people 25 years ago, and I did want to to be next to these guys and make it a business for myself. I wasn't able to connect the network and the social activity that I had and knowing that I had the ability to success at in my 20s the way you were. It looked successful from afar, but I, I didn't find my true, like, prime, like I said, till maybe four years ago. I knew, I knew that I was honing my skills and giving back to the people I love the most and it felt right. And I didn't have a need for popularity or the life. I just was, you're, I was in this very, I was in a cocoon. I was in this cocoon. I don't know why. I just was in this little pad in my head, in my lab, 
knowing it was gonna work out because I think I had a good relationship with time. I wasn't scared that I was wasting my 20s and I would never have fun. I think I had wisdom with how long life is that made me patient in a time where other alphas were impatient. I was impatient. I mean, I have a stupid tattoo on my hand that says patience. You know, I was, I was impatient. But you know what? I, I think that my journey was right for me because- You also had another thing. You had talent, which means it's eventually gonna play out. Talent matters. No, talent matters. Listen, well, that's what I mean by, you know, there's some things that you're born with. There's some things that you can't run from. You got to put the work in and you got to be able to see the field. You got to be able to have a play. Even if there's seven steps before that play, like you got to know what you're going to do when you get into the end zone and you're going to put it in the end zone. When I tell you that, like one of the things that I just thought when you were talking was, I can't wait to have dinner with Rich in 16 years. Reference this. See how young he feels at 59 and tell him, like I told you, bro, like we got 20 fucking more years to do damage. We'll probably be on podcast episode like 2000. <laughs> on the moon. Did you lose any of your optimism March, April, May when the unknown was right in front of us? Other way. Swear, swear. I like tough times because winners win more. I had been very antsy and I had the content to prove it. That's what's great about the receipts now of filming yourself all the time. I think there was a lot of people that were soft, that were fake, that, and I think they got exposed during this time. Like this has been, this is, I mean, my companies, my reality, like is foundationally in a better spot today than it was on March 1st, because I've had ungodly amounts of time to navigate through choppy waters, and I'm a fucking sailor, I'm a captain. Yeah, I, by the way, I, I hear here, I'm, I'm on the same page. We're blessed to have been able to, you know, function through this pandemic, but I do think that the focus, it also made you realize it, this is a real lesson for anyone that paid any attention is the fluff and the bullshit got in the way of so much in my life with as much success as we were starting to put in place. Once I cut out a lot of the extra, the gratuitous um, traveling, the gratuitous networking and really just focused on what the mission was. Operate. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that a lot of us took that for granted. There's a lot of people who can't operate. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of us who have the sizzle and the steak and to your point, look, we know that the sizzle, one night, one meeting leads to the whole unlock. Don't, don't get it twisted, Rich. As happy as you and I are, there was one night during NBA All-Star or the ESPYs or something else where you could have one combo that will absolutely exceed all the react. So like, I think we'll go back to doing that. I just think that having moments to be able to operate if you're capable is also fun. No, that's a good point. I think we'll go back to it for sure. I think that you have to. It's too valuable. It's too valuable. The, seren the serendipity of the, of the of those nights where you get into a twenty eight minute conversation with somebody in the corner. I had a crazy uh, Steve Stout and I had one of my favorite conversations ever at KD's thing at Catch right before at the, his birthday this year. Right when you when I you know like like that night. That's very over the top. That's amazing. I get I'm thrilled to be able to like go to a night like that. I'm always still grateful. But it's in that moment at the bar that him and I had a really nice combo that like really I find valuable, you know? So I, I still think those things will, will matter tremendously, but I do think, I do think, listen, I think the other side of, the, of I don't think the other shoe dropped yet. The economy on, in, in the macro, on Main Street, it's been hurt in certain levels, but there's still a lot of ramifications to the amount of money that the government printed and those things will play out. Did you use your voice during this election? Did you use your platform at all? I, I did and I didn't. I think it's, a, I, I think, I, couple things. I, 
I did. I made, anytime somebody asked me who you're voting for, I answered. I was pretty active down the stretch in the last week. But I also am aware that like, I didn't want to like, nobody's changing their mind because the person they follow told them to vote for something. What I did was I focused on the things I believed in, like when the subjects came up. So I would say yes and no, behind the scenes, yes. But as, as a platform, I made myself very clear when asked and through certain pieces of content over the last year that I was voting towards Biden and things of that nature. I got a lot louder down the stretch, especially on election day, I got into it real heavy and like really putting out a lot of content, engaging with a lot of audience that was upset with me and voting in a way that they didn't want to. But I don't, but I don't, I don't, I think people are delusional in thinking that like I have an audience and they're gonna vote for who I'm voting for. I think the conversation of kindness, I think the conversation of like how to do the right thing, like I think my words of like how to do things was my much bigger platform play. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I think it's it's overrated how much a celebrity or a, a motivational entrepreneur can do. I would argue that it's been countered and goes the other direction. Yep. Did you did you take a, a, a harder look at your organization um, during July as the pro, as the protests became louder? Yes, of course. Me too. Yes. George Floyd, yes, told my head of HR you know, this week, I'm like, let's get ready for the transgen and the next thing and the next thing because that's what society's gonna do and that's good. And you know, and like certain times you're flat-footed, certain times you're not. You know, like I think we could have been in a better place with George Floyd. It was a serendipity, like certain people quit, certain people get fired. You know, you ebb and flow on like what your percentage of diversity and inclusion look like. I think our intent's always been in the right place, but we're we're being we're being wildly thoughtful of representation because it's, to me, it's no different than having a CFO and caring about your financial situation. Like it, you know, it matters because when you have constituents in the building, like I'll give you an example. I was trying to make an example of somebody who's a big sports fan of my company who I just literally felt didn't get it. And I said, you ever walk by and see somebody wearing a Jets hat and you feel closer to them? He's like, yeah. I'm like that. I'm like, Everybody who's not a white dude in this company needs to see somebody at the tippy tops and every direction because it feels warmer. It's just that thing. And no matter how down you are, no matter how nice you are, like the actions matter. And so we, we continue to evolve and be aggressive on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that this was that one moment in life where self-awareness, it was more than that, right? Like even if you felt like you were always on the side of right and doing enough. You needed to go further. You needed to go further. I mean, and that's how the system changes um, or at least begins to change. And I like that. I like that. You know, everyone's like, Gary, all lives matter. I'm like, cool, but black ones right now. Yep. We can get through like, you know, yellow and trans. And like, I'll get to everybody. I like them all. Yep. I'm real team human, like through and through. But I'm like, it's okay to focus on things. Like, it's okay to say you're going to do more this time. Because when there's an opening, because let there be no confusion. Every one of your black and brown friends know that this window will close and you gotta make sure you move it down the field as far as possible, period. That's just facts. Is that a fact, G? That's a fact. Everybody's onto the, I mean, that's just the way the culture is nowadays. It's like they're onto the next movement, the next, you know, whatever, whatever's relevant. Correct. And now that I think about it, me, Rich, and KD had this conversation, like, right now, like, before, it, like, in past generations, there's all these cultural leaders, like, you know, you had MLK, you had, well, that was the last real actual leader for, like, somebody to get behind. But, like, nowadays, we don't have anybody to, like, advocate, like, they are the moral compass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, listen, we had very tenacious chapter 
but I remind people, I'm like, the Great Depression was five minutes ago in the scheme of, war, of the history of life. For us, we're like, what are you talking about? We have no thoughts, but like literally, like in the scheme of the universe, that was 10 minutes ago, shit happens. Like, 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 like you know, Vietnam happened. <laughs> like, you know, like things happen. And so, you know, I think we had it so cushy in America for a decade, like we really did. Like you take 9-11 and you take the, you know, you take 9-11, you take the financial crisis, which really didn't last that long in 2008, and you could really argue that it's been a very long regime of prosperity as the empire, and you, you get lulled into it. You get lulled into it, and I think this, 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 this country has racist DNA, like no different than Europe has anti-Semitic DNA. It's just true, like, like, you know, like it's just what it is, and facing it, and one step backwards. My biggest thing that I think a lot about right now is if you look at history, which we referenced a lot in this interview, whenever things get extreme to the left or right, the only answer in history that didn't lead to it breaking was the middle. Like I tell, you know, it's not like, if we go down this path of more to the far right, more to the far left, it's only sustainable for so long. It's gonna be interesting to your point, Jenny, of like who's gonna come along from either side and go hard towards the middle you know, Bill Clinton was middle Democrat, you know? For sure. Biden's history of politics was more middle than Obama's. Like there's like, you know, so I think you, you gotta, but the day and age now with the way the web works. So I don't know, I just wish people had more compassion, more empathy. To me, like, like we, we struggle with those characteristics and I think it leads to a lot of problems. You're right. And I'm going to wrap up now and tell you that I really, like, I loved every minute of this. I knew we were going to have an incredible convo. We could do part two, three, four. I mean, if you let us get on your pod, you'll make us hot out here in these streets. So you let me know. But telling people that this has happened before right now is tough. It's like being on an incredibly turbulent flight and you tell people like turbulence is normal, but no one buys it in the middle of the turbulence, right? Like, it's just a fact. And I'll tell you also, I, I think that way too, like, well, what happened to the Me Too movement? I think I try to look at it the other way, which is, well, let me not stop working on my part. Like, that movement's not over for me, you know? By the way, that's the only way. I'm just saying, I'm not saying what happened to it. Here's what happened to it. We advanced it dramatically, thank God. And to your point, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people have kept that in them. I will keep all of this in me forever. These are learning events. I'm just saying, is it in the national consciousness of what we talk about every day? And the answer is no, which means you have two camps. The ones that are like, oh yes, good. Let me go back to how I want it. Or the ones that took from it and advanced. And you just always wanna be in the camp of took from it and advanced. 100%, man. That's a perfect way to wrap this up. Well, Gary, listen. Thank you again. Appreciate you, bro. This was incredible. I will speak to you soon. And um, thanks and congrats on everything, bro. Thank you, guys. Love you guys. Take care.